How many of you consider yourself to be a patient person? Can I please see your hand? Anybody? Okay, there's two, three, four, five. All right, all right. The rest of us need to listen to this message today, okay? The other ones, they can play on their phone. No, I'm kidding. Um, You know, I love what I read in a Dr. Seuss book a long time ago, and um, it talks about something that's referenced a lot during like graduations and in those times. Um, He writes and he says, waiting for the fish to bite or waiting for wind to fly a kite or waiting around for Friday night, everyone is just waiting. And it comes from his book, The Waiting Place. Now, um, I'm willing to wait for some things longer than I am for others, okay? So I'm not willing to wait in the McDonald's drive-thru, never, but I'm not willing to wait in the McDonald's drive-thru for 30 minutes for a hamburger, right, for a cheeseburger, but I would willingly go on a date with my wife and spend time in a nice restaurant with good food, fresh ingredients, in a busy place, and wait 30, 45 minutes for my meal to arrive, knowing that it's going to be amazingly tasty and, and well thought out and prepared and all of that kind of thing. So there are some things we're willing to wait for and others that we're kind of impatient uh, when it comes to that. And waiting really can be hard. Um, If you talk to any of our kids in Celebrate Kids this morning in this building, um, waiting is hard for most of them, right? Uh, It's just, I want it now, I want it yesterday kind of thing. So while waiting is hard, the only thing that's harder than waiting on God is wishing that you had. Oh, (laughs) all right. The only thing harder than waiting, the only thing that's more difficult than waiting is realizing that we hadn't waited on God, that we rushed the process. We can look through scripture and we can see details of people, their biographies, uh, details of when they kind of pushed the envelope too far, stepped out of in front of what God wanted and God still redeemed it, but it was problematic for them in the time. So we've got to understand that waiting while it is hard, waiting on God is always worth it. Amen. So I want to share with you a few verses of scripture this morning as we start to wrap up our Leviticus series. Our Leviticus series will just cover two or three more weeks, and we'll talk about chapter 23 in Leviticus. But before we get there, I want to share with you this thought about God and waiting. Revelation chapter 1 verse 8 says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So he has no beginning and he will have no end. He doesn't see time like you and I see time. This is an important encouragement for us today. Now you may not need this encouragement in this moment, but chances are you'll need it tomorrow. (laughs) You'll need it tomorrow because we've got to understand that God's clock doesn't work like our clock. How many of you know that to be true? Anybody raise your hand? Yes, I know that to be true. But that's why we have to persevere. That's why we've got to have patience. That's why we've got to keep praying and pursuing God. That's what we've got to do. We've got to keep praying. Listen to what Psalm 27 verse 14 says. It says this, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. 
The psalmist is telling himself, essentially, but it's also for the benefit of us today, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage, and wait for the Lord. You know what I do when I'm waiting on the Lord? I'm reminding myself of all the times I waited before, and it showed up. All the times that I waited and it was worth it because God came through. He may not have come through the way I wanted him exactly. He may not have come through in the timing that I wanted him exactly, but God is a God with perfect timing. Amen? So we've got to understand that. As we talk about that, the idea for that personal encouragement resonates with me today, waiting on God. God set a calendar for the Hebrew people, the Jewish people that we know today. And in Leviticus chapter 23, we're gonna look through some of those feasts that he set on their annual calendar. And I believe they're very significant for us even today. We're gonna look at the first two feasts that are mentioned there, but before we do, I wanna share with you a core theological concept. That is something that could be easily stated, but a little bit more difficult to explain. And that is this phrase, already, but not yet. We see that throughout scripture, that God's kingdom is here now. The church is alive today, right now, but we haven't yet seen the fullness and the fulfillment of it. We know that Christ came, he died for our sins, he was resurrected on the third day, he sent the Holy Spirit to be with us here on the earth that we would not be alone without God's presence. He has a perfect plan, but while we're waiting, we've got to see that some of the elements are already here and some are yet to come. We're gonna see that when we look at these feasts that are listed in Leviticus chapter 23. It's this idea that we're actively taking part in the kingdom of God, although we won't see its full expression until sometime in the future. So we're already in the kingdom, but we don't yet see its fullness. I love what it says in the New Testament. It says, you are saved or have been saved. You are being saved and you shall one day be saved. That doesn't mean that you have to walk an aisle and come to the front three times in order for that process to happen. It's this fact and this fact alone. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. He died a gruesome death. He rose victoriously conquering death and he did it all for us. In that, we are saved. Every day when I read my Bible and when I am illuminated by something in there and I think to myself as I inventory my life, huh, I should probably work on that. <laughs> then I am being saved. His work is still happening in me. And yet, I'm not yet there in heaven with those who have departed and gone on before, but one day we shall, the Bible says, those who are believers all be saved, amen? So it's this idea of what we call already but not yet. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews says it. He puts it this way in chapter two, verse eight. He says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, being Jesus, he left nothing outside of his control. Say that, say nothing nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So it's this idea that it's already, but not yet. You're going to see in this annual calendar 
that we have in Leviticus chapter 23 that God gave the ancient Israelites, you're going to see that same process. And modern Jews still follow the same calendar even today. So let me be clear about one more thing before we look at what those feasts are. I want to say this really clearly because I, I tend to be super practical and a realist. Um, I, I don't want to just preach fluffy. I want to give you tools for your life. Okay. So what I'm doing today is according to scripture, Ephesians chapter four says, my job is to equip you for the work of the ministry. And that's what I want to accomplish today. Having said that, I want to tell you, there has been something weird that has happened in the body of Christ. There has been this thought that when they look at the feasts in the Old Testament, that all of a sudden we as believers are mandated to follow those feasts. Now, I want to be clear about it. They had a time and a place and a context then, and they still can have meaning and significance today. But please, please don't elevate these things to the place of, well, we have to celebrate Passover. We don't. Scripture is clear about that. This was for them then. Amen. That's a tongue twister. Them then. But let me tell you, if you do choose as a believer to observe these feasts and find significance and meaning in celebrating them, so be it. But remember, it's an option and a preference. It's not a mandate. So when we're looking at it, how many of you have ever been to a Passover Seder? Anybody in here? Okay, a couple of hands. I have two. We don't have one at our house every Passover, but we have been to some who have celebrated them and they've talked about the idea of Jesus being represented all throughout the Passover in all the different steps. So let's jump into Leviticus chapter 23, verse four and five is where we'll begin. The first few verses talk about the Sabbath, which we talked about recently. Your pastor will tell you again, especially college students, rest. It's okay to rest, okay? It's not okay to be lazy, okay? I tell my kids all the time, Bamberas aren't lazy. Don't you try that stuff. No, but yes, there is a time for rest, amen? Okay, so don't, don't wait till the last minute to turn in that exam or that, that project and that kind of thing and then be like, well, but pastor said I should rest. Um, <laughs> verse four says this, okay? Leviticus 23. It says, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Look up at me for a moment. So Passover is the first feast that we'll talk about. And really what it is, is it's a commemoration. It's a remembrance ceremony of God delivering the Israelites from Egypt. This is when he freed them from slavery and brought them out of the land. It's celebrated every spring. And the book of Exodus tells us of the origin of Passover. If you can remember the 10 plagues, actually, if you can tell me all 10 plagues right now, I'd give you a Chick-fil-A card. We don't have time for that, but see me after and recite them to me, okay? It tells of the 10 plagues because God was trying to get the people of Israel out of Egypt, and this 10th plague was the killing of the firstborn of anyone in that whole region who didn't have the blood of a spotless lamb applied to their door. It says, when the angel of death would come through, it would kill every firstborn living. In fact, uh, we see that it affected all of those who weren't uh, covered, you could say, 
by the blood with it applied on their door. So when Pharaoh refuses to let them go, even after nine plagues, all of the problems that they had as a result of this, he finally gives in, and this is the 10th and worst plague. But this is also the night of the Passover that they celebrate in remembrance year in and year out. The Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 12 that they were to mark their doors with the blood of this spotless lamb. So in a very real way, the blood of the lamb saved the Israelites from death because it kept the destroyer from entering their homes. So the Israelites were saved from the plague and their child was kept alive. The Bible actually tells us from this moment on in the Jewish history that every firstborn that was, that was born in any family belonged to the Lord. The Lord was making it something very plain for them to understand so that they would see how important it was. So along with the instruction to apply the Passover lamb's blood to their door, God instituted this meal that they would sit and eat. It was fire-roasted lamb. Praise God. That's some good eating, okay? Some bitter herbs, not so good. And unleavened bread, basically crackers, something that doesn't have yeast inside of it. The Lord told them they were supposed to observe this rite as something of a statute for them and for their sons forever, even if they're in a foreign land. So the Passover has already happened in the Hebrews' life in Egypt as they're leaving, but then we see something even more fulfilling when John the Baptist sees Jesus more than a thousand years after that first Passover— John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says this in John chapter one, verse 29. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The gospel tells us, or all of the gospels rather, tell us that Jesus was in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover during his last days here on earth. It says that he was with his disciples, and then we understand that he was crucified on Passover, Scripture tells us, and it's believed that he is the final Passover lamb. He is the sacrifice that tops all the rest. The Apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit as he was writing to the Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he says that Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. He is what we need for death to be conquered. Death cannot touch us. Do you understand the significance of how this plays out? Now that we have 2020 hindsight looking back, we understand that Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave, and that death no longer has a hold on us, that we are eternally his. When we belong to him, we are his forever, and God wanted to make it very clear there was one sacrifice that paid that debt and made it possible. It was Jesus Christ. So God establishes this annual event on the calendar of the Jewish people in order to commemorate their deliverance from bondage in Egypt, but it wasn't just something to look back towards. It was something to look forward to. It was this idea that at some point they would experience not just a temporal or a temporary deliverance, but that they could experience an eternal deliverance in the future. So believers today, actually, we as believers, when we celebrate communion, we are actually partaking in a sense of a Passover meal. 
Jesus was breaking bread, sharing it, and sharing the wine with his disciples that night, celebrating Passover. And Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12 talk about when we take communion, what was passed on to Paul was that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. So we're still partaking of something that's already Jesus back then, but not yet fully fulfilled in a sense because we are not yet with him. Let me say this really clearly. If you're here today and you haven't experienced this eternal deliverance, it's free. Just like that Chick-fil-A card. I got it free. I give it free. Amen? Come on, somebody. Salvation. It's free. It doesn't cost us anything. But if you're here today and you've never made that choice, or maybe you say that I have made that choice, I have actually said, God, I give you my life, my heart, my soul. I confess my sins before you. I am a sinner. I do need a savior. I believe that you are the son of God, that you died and rose again for me. You say, I did that a long time ago, but I'm not living like that now. You can make that choice even today, just like that. It's, it's so good. It's a free gift to all of us. But I tell you what the hardest part is for us. The hardest part is not accepting that we need a savior. The hardest part is accepting that we need a Lord. The Bible says that Jesus is to be the savior and the Lord of our lives, which means in essence that he is the owner of me. So if he's the owner of me, I should do what he bids me to do. I should do, and I don't want to offend anybody's sensibilities, but I should do what was done by the imagery and imagination of what a slave does. In fact, Paul says, I am a slave to Jesus Christ. I do exactly what he asked me to do. Most days. How how often can we say that? See, that's the issue that we have as believers is that it was easy. It's easy in a moment to just say, I believe in you. You're the son of God. You died to purge me of my sins and give me eternal life. I love you. And then 20 days later, maybe lose the passion of that emotion and then fall back into patterns that we used to be in. Let's... Just think about what is said in scripture when it tells us that we are to, in Hebrews it says, that we are to set aside the sin that so easily weighs us down or entangles and entraps us. And we're to press forward in God's calling. That's the hard part, the discipline of a godly life. And I don't get it right 100% of the time as your pastor, so you should have hope You don't get it right, I know, 100% of the time. And the people in the Bible that we read their stories and their biographies, they didn't get it 100% of the time. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm a work in progress. Okay. Uh, I would tell you to look at your neighbor and let them tell you, you are a work in progress. No, but here's the deal. Let me just say this really clearly for you. We talk about this in the idea of our church. Our church is new, okay? It's 44 years new. But in the, last, in the last five and a half to six years, God has been doing something incredible in our church. We consider it, we use this word revitalization. 
And we say that we're always revitalizing. We're tweaking things. We're trying to be better all the time. That's the same idea you should have as a believer in your own personal faith and walk with God. You can't just set it on cruise control, right? We've got work to do, work that we have a wonderful partner. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is the one who can empower us to live the godly life that he's called us to live, but it takes some work on our part, amen? All right, I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, at the end of the message today, if you have never committed your life to Christ and given him ownership, become his slave, then today is time that you do that. At the end of the message, if you're a believer and you say, I've taken control back, a lot of it, in a lot of areas of my life, from those first few steps I took toward him, then it's time to just start fresh. That's the goodness of God and the grace of Jesus Christ that we have the ability to say, I screwed up, help me again. And God in his love and his mercy will reach out to each one of us to let us do it again. All right, let's look at the next feast. This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, verse six of chapter 23 to verse eight. It says this, on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. There it is again, God telling you to rest. Verse eight, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days and on the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. So this feast begins the night after Passover, the feast of unleavened bread. If you've ever made bread or attempted, I've attempted to make bread. I've never made bread successfully, but I've attempted to. I've never gotten it right. There's a special technique that's involved and a whole lot of waiting. And I don't like it, okay? So I want bread and I want it right now. The people of Israel are experiencing this moment, the unleavened bread, because it harkens back to Exodus chapter 12, when they're leaving the nation of Egypt and they're going towards the promised land. God says, pack your bags. You don't have time to make full doughs of bread. Just pack your bags, everything you got and go. So they didn't leaven their bread and they eat these crackers. They're sustaining them throughout this journey. So this feast begins the night after Passover's, after Passover, and they were told actually to purge their house of any leaven, anything like yeast that would cause bread to rise. In fact, the Bible is very clear in most places when it talks about leaven, it's actually symbolizing evil or sin. The significance of this feast can't be minimized. We can't just pass it over quickly. We need to understand, as believers, we've been created with a free will. Somebody say amen. We've been created with a free will, and we've got to choose to rid ourselves of all the sin and evil. It's hard, but Jesus says it's possible. It's not the wide road, it's the narrow one. It's the difficult path. And there are difficult choices that you and I have to make. My wife and I, we see this tension all the time because we're raising little ones who aren't staying so little. I'm really sad about that. I've got a fourth grader and a first grader now. 
but we make decisions all the time because we are, tempt- we are attempting to guide them and guard them. So when we download an app for their iPad, when we allow them to choose a show or a movie, we are trying to guard them from those things that would be on the, na- on the wide path so that we can keep them on the narrow path and guard their hearts. We gotta train them now. I, I didn't like it when my parents were doing that to me, and I'm sure my kids disagree with some of the things that I, but I'm the boss. <laughs> I get to make this decision and they can hate me for it. But I'm telling you, I believe no seed of the word of God will go unprofitable. That everything that we pour into our kids, parents, listen to me, grandparents, listen to me. Everything you are doing to benefit the spiritual life of a child is worth it. It's worth it. It's hard work, but it's worth it. We've got to discipline our own selves to live holy. That means saying no to some things in order to say yes to better things. An indication of maturity in any believer is that they are living in victory over sin. My wife thinks it's good. Listen to me. An indication, this is a a signpost of maturity in a believer's life. I have counseled with believers. I've spent my life in ministry. After graduating college, now I do ministry multiple, in multiple facets every week. And as I do that, I've got to tell you, the most mature people are those who acknowledge that that sin is in the past and that they are letting the Lord help them work towards the future rather than those who are holding on to something that they won't let go of. Because here's the deal. Jesus was all in and he wants you to be all in. Amen? Amen? The Holy Spirit wants to empower uh, us to live a life that's free of sin and bondage. We have a responsibility in concert with him. You've probably heard that thought before, and I've shared and preached on this before too. The idea of whether it's all grace or all works, and some people say, you know, well, I don't have to do it. You don't have to do anything to earn it, but you sure have got to do things in order to keep it to keep walking in the direction that God wants us to walk, it's work, and we have a responsibility in concert with the Holy Spirit. This is how the writer of Hebrews lays it out in chapter 12. He says this, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, of our faith. Another version says he's the foundation and the builder. Amen. So we've got to look to him to help us in this life. So each of us has some work to do, some more than others. Yes. But don't worry about the others. Just worry about the work you got ahead of you. We are a work in progress. We say that about our church and we say that about us individually. Here's an interesting modern day element that they put in the Passover meal. It's something, and uh, it, it didn't originate in scripture. It originated outside of scripture, but all Jewish families who celebrate Passover today celebrate it with this element in mind. And I wanna share this with you because I really think it'll have some meaning and importance to you. They do something with, with this idea called an afikomen, okay? It is the idea of breaking matzah that's shared at the Seder, 
okay? And a piece of the matzah, the one in the middle, just listen to me with your spiritual ears. They take a matzah that has three pieces, they break it, and the one in the middle gets wrapped in a cloth and gets hidden in the house. It gets hidden in the house until it gets found by a child, and it gets hidden in the house by the patriarch of the family. The father or the grandfather is the one who hides this piece of matzah they call the afikomen. That word afikomen means that which comes after. So they hide this, they celebrate their whole meal, then they send the kids kind of on a treasure hunt to go look for this thing. And whoever finds this piece of matzah, this cracker, unleavened bread, wrapped in a cloth, gets to redeem it for a prize. It's a pretty awesome sort of thing, a prize of their choosing. And some, some of these families go all out for the Passover. So before they begin to tell the story of the Exodus, before they talk about God's deliverance, they take that middle of three matzahs and they go and they hide this wrapped in a cloth and then they get a reward. The kids get a reward when they find it. At the end of the meal, it's brought back and it is to be the final taste in their mouths. This is their final morsel, their final bite. I want you to hear with your spiritual ears this morning. John chapter six, verse 35, Jesus says this. He says, I am the bread of life. After his crucifixion between two others, he is the one that we understand is in the middle between two thieves, as it were, two criminals. He is then wrapped in cloth and prepared for burial. He's hidden in the earth out of sight for three days until when he is found, or rather when we, when we are found by him because he now is resurrected. Our life can experience that eternal reward in his fullness, in the, in the fullness of time, the Bible has that phrase that repeats itself throughout. And I love that because that's not the fullness of hum humanity or human time. But in the fullness of time, it talks even about his birth. And now we understand this in the idea of him being the one who is the afikomen, the, the piece that is hidden and then brought back. Listen to me. During the Passover meal, the last act of that Passover meal is what I quote when we lead communion. He takes the bread that is himself, okay? We say this is allegorical. It wasn't actually a piece of his body. It doesn't become his actual body when you take it into your body. But he says, take and eat. This is my body. Broken for you. Every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So there's an eternal reward available for each of us when we find or when we're found by him. Worship team, would you come and join me? It's the idea of already, but not yet. And here again, you can see the illusion in communion when he says, I will not drink of this cup again until I celebrate it with you. Revelation chapter 19 actually tells us about something, and this is how I know Jesus is Southern, because it's called the marriage supper of the lamb, not the marriage dinner, okay? 
So praise God, okay? But in that moment, the Bible says in, in Revelation chapter 19, it says that we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb, we'll be together again, and we'll have a celebratory meal. It is in that moment and only in that moment that we'll finally recognize all that has come before. Would you stand with me? Next week, we'll talk about the other two feasts that are in the springtime, and then I'll wrap up our series with the fall festivals that they, that they celebrate and honor today. But I want you to be thinking this morning. We have this custom that we have in our church that we say this is, we're not religious about it. It happens most of the time. But we say this simple prayer, and I want all of us to say it. Just whisper it to the Lord. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? Would you do that with me right now? Just whisper it in your heart, whisper it with your lips. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? Maybe he's talking about something having to do with timing in your life. Maybe, maybe he's talking about something to you that you need to get the sin out of your life or you need to make it right with someone or in a relationship. I'm not sure, but I know this, that the Holy Spirit is real and he's here today and he's here for you and for me. So I want us to just take a moment while the worship team plays quietly to just commit ourselves to respond to whatever it is that we hear. This isn't weird or hokey. We believe that God still speaks even today and he speaks to us as believers. He leads us in our hearts. So if you hear him speak to you today, then say, God, I'll do it. God, I commit to you today. Lord, as we take just a moment to hear from you, I pray that you would speak to every heart here and that, Lord, you would be glorified in our action, that we would commit to live the life that you've called us to live, that we would put aside those weights and things that are wearing us down, tearing us down, and that we would focus on you, the author and finisher of our faith. If you're here today and you haven't yet experienced that eternal reward from finding that bread, the bread of life, I want you to just raise your hand right where you are and you say, Pastor, I want somebody to pray with me today. If there's anybody here who has not made that commitment, I'd love the chance to pray with you today. We won't embarrass you. There's nothing about it that's embarrassing. In fact, we would welcome you with celebration into the family of God today. If there's anyone here, just raise your hand. Believing that we're all believers then because no hands are raised, I want you to know that we're here to pray for you. You can open your eyes and look at me real briefly. On this wall over here and on this wall are prayer stations. Grant is gonna help us at this wall and I'll be at this one. We wanna take time to pray with you. What we do right now in this last moment of service is the worship team will lead a song and we'll sing. But during that time, it's nice and loud enough for you to be able to come over and say, I need prayer for my husband. I need prayer for me. I need prayer for my job. Will you pray for me? I'm sick. And when you do that and step out, nobody hears, nobody's paying attention. People step out every Sunday to come and receive prayer. And it could be a different thing for every single person in this room. Grant, would you go ahead and take your place? So as they begin to sing, if you have a prayer need for any reason, feel free to step out to one of these prayer stations and we'll pray for you. Also, if you say, you know what, pastor, I'm not feeling that today, but I sure would love somebody to know what I'm going through. 
in the seat back, right where you are, is a prayer request card. You can fill one of those out. You can do it anonymously and we'll pray for you. You can drop it in the baskets that are there at the prayer station, or you can even drop it in the giving box on the way out because we believe that prayer is a good thing, amen? And that there's no better place to do it than to do it together in the house of God and in his presence. Worship team, would you lead us in this last song?